Welcome to episode two of Spyglass. This is your host, Jasmine Lee. And before we get into the thick of it, I'm letting you know that Harbor Times is on Patreon, where you can get ad-free access to this podcast and other exclusive content. HT is an independently run publication, and as you'll learn in this episode, independent journalism is in a bit of a rough state in Hong Kong. Every dollar counts to help us bring our audience the critical and quality news you deserve. We also have some freebies for all our patrons in the work, so please keep an eye out for updates on our socials, which you can find in our show notes. And with that, let's get started. By the end of August last year, Hong Kong had seen a number of large-scale, peaceful, and violent protests as part of the anti-extradition law movement. Incidents such as that of July 21st, when civilians, both non-protesters and protesters alike, were attacked by a large group of men in white shirts, only drove a wider rift between pro-democracy protesters and the police force. But even then, no one expected the police raid of Prince Edward MTR station when riot police stormed the subway platform and a train to assault and arrest commuters indiscriminately. The conduct of law enforcement at the event and the government's response in the aftermath seemed to bring even more questions than answers. Activists and other pro-democracy groups and individuals found the government's response lacking in transparency and accountability contributing to the spread of conspiracy theories that police had murdered protesters and covered them up. This episode of Spyglass is heavy, but it's important. It is not just a commemoration of an integral and, if you ask me, herring event that occurred during the Hong Kong protests of 2019. Over the course of this episode, I will revisit what went down on that night of August 31st, which I'll also refer to throughout this podcast as 831 as well as its aftermath. I also speak with Cedric Alviani, Bureau Director of Reporters Without Borders, East Asia and Taipei Bureau Director, about Hong Kong's national security law, which was implemented in an impromptu manner two months ago, shaking Hong Kong to its core, and the ways in which it may affect the reporting of controversial events similar to 831 that may occur in the future. What this episode may be doing is breaking the law, more on that in a bit. Part 1. The Night of 831 August 31st is an important day in the recent history of pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong. Six years ago, Beijing announced that it would continue to choose the candidates for Hong Kong's chief executive position, from which Hong Kong citizens could vote for instead of allowing them full autonomy over who could run for this appointment. This decision was the trigger for Occupy 2014, also known as the Umbrella Revolution. Since the first million-person march on June 9, 2019, large-scale protests have been held at least once a week, with many lunchtime protests happening around the city, including in the Central Business District. This was still going strong by the end of August. For anyone less familiar with the anti-extradition protests in Hong Kong, I have left links to sources and explainers in the show notes. I also highly recommend This American Life's podcast episode, Umbrellas Down, which offers a unique and humanizing perspective from both sides of the debate. Civil Human Rights Front, pro-democracy group and often the organizer of demonstrations, originally planned a protest for August 31st and asked for clearance from the police. Due to the violent nature of many protests at that point, which had disturbed much of daily life in the finance hub, 
The protest was banned and the organization called for its cancellation. Even then, thousands of protesters still took to the streets that day, participating in unlawful assembly. At around 11 p.m., riot police stormed Prince Edward MTR station, pepper spraying and beating passengers with batons inside train compartments, chasing and arresting others on the platforms. Police expelled journalists and first responders from the station right after the incident, saying that there was a, quote, crime scene, end quote. According to RTHK's analysis, at 11.17 p.m., a batch of paramedics arrived at entrance B1 of the station, but was denied entry because the entrance was closed. Only one medic could enter with necessary first aid equipment. The others had to walk to entrance E with stretchers and waited until 12.23 a.m. to get into the station. An arranged train carried seven injured people to Lai Chi Kok Station at 1.23 a.m. An ambulance picked them up and sent them to nearby hospitals. A total of 52 arrests were made at Prince Edward MTR Station during this incident. Those hospitalized were later arrested for unlawful assembly. Just speaking as your host, I do feel it is necessary to emphasize that many written descriptions of this incident do not do justice to portray how just how traumatizing this event was for those in the MTR station and for uh, many of those who watched this unfold. Um, yes, no one died on official record, but many of these injuries inflicted upon individuals by officers include severe head trauma that required hospitalization and stitches, not to mention the lasting mental trauma that would likely come thereafter. Please keep this in mind when considering the police's justification for its actions that night. Now, Regardless for what side of the pro or anti-protest division you fall on, watching unarmed civilians huddling against the walls of a train and screaming as police assault them with batons and pepper spray is deeply unsettling. I highly encourage anyone who hasn't seen footage from the incident to watch the links which I'll provide in the show notes. Trigger warning for distressful scenes including physical violence and blood. At 3.15 a.m. on September the 1st, about four hours after the incident, Police Public Relations Branch Senior Superintendent Yu Hoi Kwan met with the press. She disagreed with claims that the police stormed into the station to beat civilians. She emphasized officials made a professional judgment and had deployed an appropriate degree of force. The police said that they entered the station after receiving reports that protesters assaulted members of the public and vandalized the station. They said they went there to stop violent acts. The force also said its officers had only targeted radicals who had changed their clothes after trashing the station and brawling with other passengers. But eyewitnesses said that people who were not wearing black were also beaten up. The police have also admitted that it was hard to tell who actually were their intended targets during the operation. Part 2. The Aftermath The Hong Kong Bar Association described this incident as indiscriminate attacks on behalf of the police, emphasizing the need for an independent inquiry into alleged police brutality, which is one of the five demands of the anti-extradition law movement. While Hong Kong's Independent Police Complaints Council published a report in May earlier this year, pro-Democrats criticized the IPCC due to not having the investigatory powers needed to adequately probe police misconduct allegations. The police force is responsible for investigating the complaints, which the IPCC is able to monitor, but not actually engage with. It is also worth noting that five overseas policing experts were originally recruited to assist with the report, but quit 
in December 2019, saying the IPCC fell short on the powers and capabilities needed to quote begin to meet the standards citizens of Hong Kong would likely require of a police watchdog operating in a society that values freedoms and rights. End quote. The IPCC made a total of 52 recommendations in their report. It did not investigate individuals' conduct. It was criticized to have quote. Heavily relied on secondhand information from media and other reports. End quote. It did not interview subjects of police violence, nor did it interview officers. Regarding the August thirty first Prince Edward MTR incident, the report says it was a part of police enforcement against violent protesters who had caused disturbance throughout the territory. Protesters damaged facilities at Mongkok Station at around 10 p.m. and left before police arrived. The report said that they took the train to Prince Edward Station. Meanwhile, it was reported that protesters assaulted people on a train at Prince Edward. Police officers were thus redirected to Prince Edward to put a halt to the fighting and arrest those responsible for the violence and for the vandalism of Mongkok Station. Media footage captured people changing clothes on the platforms at 10:50 p.m. However, the report does not elaborate on why police were sure that the protesters at Mongkok Station and those at Prince Edward were the same people. The report goes on to say that police chased people on the platforms because they attempted to run away, and the use of batons and pepper spray inside train compartments were due to protesters putting up to evade arrest. And even using umbrellas and sharp objects to attack the police officers, the police officers used minimum force necessary to subdue and arrest them. Concludes the report. The police also said the officers exercised observation and professional judgment, and successfully located violent protesters who disguised themselves as ordinary passengers and scattered around MTR platforms. As to why police did not make arrests inside the compartments after deploying batons and pepper spray and left the scene, it is explained that the doors of the train were closing. For their safety, the officers retreated because they would be outnumbered by quote radical mobsters end quote. The IPCC reported that it is left to individual officers to judge what level of force they should use based on their knowledge and understanding of the police force's guidelines. It is their personal responsibility. And they are held accountable for their own actions. It expects the police force will review all incidents and take necessary action against officers, if any, who exceeded the bounds of the law and police regulations. Not long after that night, rumors began to spread like wildfire that at least three civilians died in the attack because of two main reasons. The first reason is that during the hours when Prince Edward Station was closed. The probationary ambulance officer and the fire service department had revised the number of injured persons four times. They reported seven injuries at the end, compared to the initial ten. RTHK documentary Hong Kong Connection found three more injured people at a different hospital. Police said they weren't on the record because they were involved in the scuffle. The actual number of casualties is therefore higher than the official figure. Factwire talked to the six arrestees who were said to have died. The agency said it could not conclude anybody had been killed after three months of investigations. The second reason for these conspiracies is that the MTR refused to disclose 
any CCTV clips from Prince Edward Station to the public, aside from 26 screenshots from the CCTV footage, showing that paramedics arrived at the station and the train sending seven injured people to Lychee Cox Station. No images showed the attacks by police, and all faces were blurred. In March 2020, the High Court ordered the MTR to hand over the CCTV footage to a student who was arrested in the incident and is seeking compensation for alleged assault by the police. However, the plaintiff is not permitted to release any of this footage to the public. In addition, people were perturbed by the fact that journalists were absent from the scene after police closed the station and therefore found it hard to trust the official police statement for what had happened. Much like the aftermath of the July 21st attack in Yunlong, public distrust and anger against the police force and the MTR company deepened even further after this incident. Protesters have compared August 31st with July 21st due to the sentiment that there was a lack of justice and police accountability served for the harm that came to civilians. To learn more about this incident, you can find our post on July 21st in the link in the show notes or at Harbor Times on Instagram. On September the 10th, a joint press conference was held by three emergency services departments, the police force, fire services department, and hospital authority, together with the MTR. Yuhoi Kwan said the rumors of possible deaths and a cover-up was totally false and slanderous. The fire service department said the first responders miscounted the number of injured, which is what led to the confusion. Senior Assistant Chief Ambulance Officer Lo Shan Tong said it was not uncommon that the first number of casualties and the final tally were different in incidents where there were multiple casualties. Police admitted that they held paramedics outside the station for an hour, and a police official had told them that no one was injured. Chief Superintendent John C. said the officer might have meant that there was nobody injured within his field of view. Despite officials' denials that anybody died in the attack, citizens began to leave white flowers and mourned for the deaths outside Prince Edward MTR station on the last day of each month. Sometimes the commemorations would escalate into clashes with police. A poll taken in October 2019 showed that 47.5% of responders agree that people were beaten to death by police that night, while 29.5% disagree and 9.1% are half-half, while the remaining 14% were unsure. According to a research report on public opinion during the anti-extradition bill movement in Hong Kong, 42.7% of responders said that they had no trust at all in Hong Kong police during the period between August 7th to 13th, compared to 48.3% between September 5th to 11th. 68.8% of responders from a similar 2008 survey said that their image of the police had worsened. Responders who hold a poorer image of the police were asked to indicate what affected their evaluation. 82.2% mentioned the 721 Yun Long incident, while 49.8% cited the 831 Prince Edward incident. The point of bringing up this conspiracy is not to push the narrative that this is some cover-up for murder. It's understandable that the number of injured persons may have been altered a number of times due to disorganized record-keeping or changing information. But it's important to understand the factors contributing to the rampant speed at which these rumors spread. 
The viral nature of these conspiracies could also be understood by a 2017 study called The Psychology of Conspiracy Theories, published on Sage Journals, which says that epistemic factors that increase belief in conspiracies include situations involving large-scale events, where more mundane or small-scale explanations seem inadequate, or situations where people experience distress over uncertainty. Social reasons that encourage conspiracies include situations where people are on the losing side of a political issue, or if they have a lower social status due to income or ethnicity, or they have experienced social ostracism, or they are prejudiced against enemy groups they perceive as powerful. With this in mind, we could put into context how the 831 conspiracy theories spread so quickly and became so prominent in protest discourse that the government had to publicly address these rumors. And now, a word from our sponsor. If you haven't heard of it yet, Anchor is life-changing. Anchor is your one-stop shop to record, edit, and distribute your podcast. Looking into the distribution, I thought that there would be a lot more involved, and Anchor does all that hard work for you. And you can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listeners. It's that easy. All you have to do to get started is download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm. Part 3. The National Security Law The National Security Law came over Hong Kong in one fell swoop. At the time of its introduction in June, Hong Kong was already reeling from months of protest, not to mention the impact COVID-19 had on its economy. It was created behind closed doors with zero transparency to the public, and the law in its entirety was revealed to the public only on the day it was enacted. The law criminalized civil disobedience and political dissent under four pillars, secession, subversion, terrorism, and colluding with foreign forces. Its parameters for what could be illegal under the law were vague, gripping protesters with fear as the scope of the law is so broad that they would not know what could or could not get them arrested. Examples of the effect of this law on the protests include rendering the pro-democracy slogan, liberate Hong Kong, revolution of our time, illegal. Lenin walls, which are like billboards of support for the pro-democracy movement, were torn down. And even people who peacefully protested, holding up nothing but blank white sheets of paper, were put under arrest. For more detail, Harbor Times has two explainers on the national security law, which you can find in the link of sources in the show notes. But what about Hong Kong's media? The law, catching Hong Kong by surprise, gave left-leaning publications little time to react to the situation. Two weeks after the law's implementation, the New York Times moved a third of its Hong Kong office to South Korea. In early August, Jimmy Lai, founder of Hong Kong newspaper Apple Daily, was arrested under the security law for accusations of collusion with a foreign country. The office of Apple Daily was raided by police on the same day as his arrest, and at the time of this recording, Lai's media company, Next Digital, has sought legal action to prevent the police from going through a number of seized documents and for the return of said items. I spoke to Cedric Alviani of Reporters Without Borders on the effect of the national security law on protest reporting and the future of media freedoms in Hong Kong as a whole. According to the RSF World Press Freedom Index, Hong Kong fell from its ranking at 18th in 2002 to 73rd out of 180 other countries. 
A decrease in global transparency and a number of controversial incidents over the course of these years contributed to its steep decline. What I can say about the police incidents is that we have recorded uh, since the beginning of the uh, pro-democracy uh, protest last year a huge number of uh, incidents involving uh, the, the, the police violence on journalists, and this is not um, this, this is not a random thing. This is something that has been designed. Uh, there, there were some testimonies of journalists that mentioned that they were deliberately uh, targeted uh, as a group of journalists. And it's, it is not accidental. It, it is impossible that such a consistent trend of violence on journalists would be accidental. Do you believe that the national security law sort of helps continue to enable the police to crack down on journalists when it comes to these coverage, this sort of coverage? Well, of course, because the national security law now provides the excuse for uh, the police and the authorities to bypass the uh, freedom of the press that is uh, supposedly enshrined in the um, basic law in Hong Kong. In the past, uh, we kept reminding the authorities that uh, the very purpose of their existence is to uh, um, enforce the basic law, which includes freedom of the press. But now we have a text that supersedes somehow the basic law and uh, with which the authorities uh, can basically do whatever they want in the name of a very vague principle of national security with very vague crime uh, accusations uh, such as terrorism or collusion with a foreign power, which basically uh, do not uh, have a detailed definition so that allow the authorities to accuse any person of any type of crime, knowing that this can bear up to a life sentence in Hong Kong. And even in the case uh, the uh, accused was judged in mainland China, that could in theory bear a life, a, a death penalty sentence. So all that being said, I mean, a lot of people compared what happened in Yunlong, the white shirt mob attack, to what happened with the riot police at Prince Edward MTR station. Um, what do you think that this national security law means for for um, coverage on these sorts of events that may or may not happen in the future? Well, so far, the authorities still make the difference between journalists uh, interviewing a person and a person expressing uh, their opinion themselves. Uh, but this might not be the case in the future. Uh, there might be a uh, more and more blurry line between uh, expressing an opinion and reporting on someone expressing an opinion, which means that in the future, uh, journalists might be uh, accused of some of the crimes uh, that are already being um, applied on some activists. For example, if a journalist uh, interviews an uh, advocate of Hong Kong's independence, that journalist could possibly be accused of supporting uh, independence, uh, which, which is now a crime. So it's very difficult for journalists to know what is the limit. And of course, freedom of the press should not have such a limit. Freedom to report facts report opinions should not have any limit when um, 
when there has to be a limit is difficult when this limit is not clear it's even harder for journalists to uh, decide what they can safely report on or not and on that note um when when chief executive of hong kong carrie lam when she was asked if reporters could still work freely without being afraid of censorship her response was and i quote if the foreign correspondence club or all reporters in hong kong can give me a 100% guarantee that they will not commit any offenses under this national legislation then i can do the same what do you make of this that sounds like a joke i mean the whole <laughs> sentence is a joke by itself mm -hmm. it's how can a journalist possibly uh give a 100% guarantee that they will not uh infringe a regulation that is not clearly stated how is it even possible so that very answer is the proof that Carrie Lam totally runs out of any argument she doesn't even pretend anymore that press freedom can be fully enforced in Hong Kong because she knows it's impossible she knows that this regulation somehow goes against every principle of the basic law and especially the uh, principle of press freedom and that there is no way she can guarantee anything to journalists so i can understand uh, it's a big embarrassment because apparently uh, Gary Lam didn't have much power or much impact uh, on the way that uh, regulation was decided and applied and now she somehow has to justify something that is just unjustifiable when it comes to interviews like the one that we're having neither of us are physically in hong kong at the time of this interview but this interview is about um Hong Kong and protests and something that would be um I would say voicing opinions that go against the establishment um at at the same time when this interview comes out it's going to be targeted towards uh readers in Hong Kong or reader at least readers interested in Hong Kong could this interview be seen as uh breaking the the security law even then Absolutely one very worrying aspect of the national security law is that it does not only target uh, people located in Hong Kong it basically targets every commentator or every journalist reporting on Hong Kong or on China no matter where they are being located and it is not clear uh, if that regulation could be uh, retroactive or not so that it would touch uh, journalists for what they wrote in the past but what is sure is that any journalist who writes on Hong Kong comments on Hong Kong reports on Hong Kong has to be careful has to avoid uh, the Hong Kong airport as much as they can when they transit because there is no guarantee that they would be safe they could possibly be arrested in the name of the national security they could possibly be accused of one of the crimes um, listed in the national security law would you be as concerned for um journalists who are part of much smaller publications or would you be worried more about say for vocal um journalists with um Hong Kong Free Press, SEMP 
Fortunately, uh, the Chinese authorities, uh, even if they are powerful, do not have the ability to hit um, on every person on earth who comments on the, uh, their activities or who comments on Hong Kong. So their strategy is usually to hit on one or several persons who are symbolic and uh, whose punishment would deter other journalists uh, or commentators. Uh, the, the, the case of, of Jimmy Lai, for example, uh, is totally emblematic of that uh, policy. Uh, Jimmy Lai, the founder of Apple Daily, was uh, arrested last year and is now accused of uh, collusion with a foreign power for which he risks a life sentence in Hong Kong. There is absolutely no way for a business person to protect themselves from such an accusation because how can possibly the owner of Apple Daily not be in touch with foreigners, with foreign companies, with foreign organizations? Apple Daily has been abundantly reporting on the pro-democratic protests and has been advocating for uh, the pro-democracy camp to have the possibility to be heard. So uh, how is it possible that Jimmy uh, Lai would not be in touch with uh, foreign organizations? Does that mean he committed any crime? Of course not. Freedom of the press is also the freedom for the media to be in touch with other points of view and to be in touch with international media and international organizations. So you can see that with the national security law, it becomes possible for the Hong Kong authorities, and of course we can see the hand of um, the uh, Beijing regime behind them, it becomes possible to accuse any person of any kind of a crime. It's basically a license for the authorities to um, punish any person uh, that um, carries reporting they dislike. And that is all for this episode. Be sure to follow Harbor Times on all of our socials, and if you'd like to support us with your dollar, feel free to check us out on Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation on our website. Check out the show notes for all the details. Thank you for listening to the end, and I hope you'll join me on another episode of Spyglass to come out next month. Spyglass, a closer look at political Hong Kong, is hosted and produced by Jasmine Lee. A special thank you goes out to our intern, Sarah Cheng, for doing the background research for this episode. It's also her last month with Harbor Times, as she'll be headed back to school in September. So I'd like to give her a shout out for all the fantastic work she's done with us this summer. Best of luck to you, Sarah.